0: morning, let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. We start the, the final chapter of this book we've been in for a while. Um, I'm excited to come to this final chapter. It gets really practical finally. He takes all of that doctrine that we've looked at for the first 12 chapters, and you know a lot of it has been quite deep. He takes all of that theology, all of the head stuff, and now he's going to bring it down and say, here's what you do with it. Here's how it impacts your life. Here's something you should change and be doing with your life because of all of that head knowledge. Hebrews 13. It's. It seems like if you just read it, like he randomly is throwing out, do this in your life and do that in your life. It's not random. I just want to share with you real quickly. I think Hebrews 13 and the practical things we'll look at they fit under a context. If you back up to Hebrews 12, verse 28, which is where we were last Sunday. He said this, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, I believe that is why we have Hebrews 13 written in Hebrews. I believe he's saying something like this. I just told you to, with your life, offer up gratitude for God With acceptable worship, and I told you that word worship can actually be better translated service, any kind of service to God. So I think he's now answering the question, but but what do I do? What does that look like? Well, Hebrews 13 is the answer to, okay, here are a sampling list he's going to give of ways that you and I with our practical daily lives can express gratitude back to God. By doing the things that pleases God, offering up this idea of acceptable worship, acceptable service. He's going to go down in verse or excuse me, chapter 13. Later on, I'm jumping ahead, but he'll say in verses 12 through 14 this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him. That's to Jesus outside the camp. Bear the reproach he endured For we have no lasting city for here. We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, I share that to say this. It's like, again, everything he's going to share in Hebrews 13 is pointing us to that section to say something like this as well. My daily life, your daily life as a Christian is meant to be lived in service to God, showing gratitude for God by doing the things we're going to walk through. But then on another sense, he's going to say, it's also how you show that your life is about service to Jesus. And one ways that we do that is we bear the shame that Christ bore. You know, he suffered and he died and it was humiliating what he went through. And he's saying, look, you may not die on a cross. You may not literally be nailed on a cross. I hope that you and I are not. But he says in the same way, though, our lives are to be lived here as if we're, we're just passing through. We're not citizens here permanently. We're just passing through, waiting until we get to our eternal home in heaven. Then the question becomes, okay, how do I then live in a way that honors Christ? If I say with my mouth, he's my Lord and Savior, how do I actually live a life that shows I want to honor him with my actions? That'll be these things that we walk through this morning and next week. So that's where chapter 13 is going to go. It's really exploring these questions. How do we live a life of acceptable service to God? And how do we live for Jesus while we're still here in this earthly body, living this earthly life? It's really touching on what many call ethics. You may have heard of the word ethics. See, the Bible is more than just a book of teaching us doctrine and theology. The stuff that fills our minds. Sometimes we learn things it's in our head. We, we read the Bible and it teaches us stuff we need to know and believe. But sometimes we can forget that those ideas are meant for a purpose. They're meant to go from our head out through our hands and our feet, actions. Most of the New Testament letters, if you read the letters of Paul especially, you'll find they all have a similar format. Most of it, let's just say three quarters of it, maybe as much as 90% of a New Testament letter, it's all like teaching and doctrine. Understand this, believe that. Then you get to the end and they'll say something like, now therefore, go do this with what I just taught you. How you think in your head, your mind, how you think, what you believe, will largely determine how you live. You look at I can't look inside your brain. You can't look inside mine. I don't mean the organ. I mean what you're thinking, what you believe. But what I can do and what you can do for me is look at the actions I take. The actions you and I take you can sort of work backwards and say because they're doing A, B, C, that leads me to understand that they probably believe X, Y, Z. Thoughts lead to actions. Belief leads to actions. That's the challenge for us is we can just sometimes read the Bible and get caught up in the knowing in our head, rather than we forget about. But the knowing is meant for us to be doing. We're to be doing something. That's Hebrews thirteen. Then we're going to get to the what do we do? Well. He's really just saying, here's how you live ethically as a Christian in this life. How do you know right from wrong, good from bad, how to live the right life before God? So I want you to think of these next sermons here to end out this book in Hebrews 13 with how do I carry out actions in my life now that please God? What should I do to show God that I'm grateful for the salvation he's given me? And the kingdom he's promised that I'll inherit. How do we show that gratitude back to him besides just simply saying thank you? Well, he calls us to do things that show gratitude. We can't pay him back, right? Like well, we, we just literally cannot pay God back for what he's done for us. That's not his point. But he says, nonetheless, you and I are called to show gratitude. Just with words? Well, that's the start. But with deeds, with actions. So that's where all of this is to lead us to see what actions show that we have gratitude in our hearts for God. The first way that we live pleasing to God and show gratitude, he's going to say, and it's a point for our message today, it's really in how we treat the rest of the family of God, our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. God is concerned with how we deal with one another in the church, in his body of Christ. It's a big family. The Bible says that we have all been adopted to God's family through faith in Jesus Christ. Now that's our title then we're we're going today is live a life of gratitude to God. And this will be kind of a mini series. Well, how do we do that? The first way, he says, is by showing love to the family of God. How do I prove to God I have gratitude for what he's done for me? I show love to the family of God. If you would join me in standing out of respect for reading of God's word. I just want to read these first three verses that the message comes from today. Hebrews 13, 1-3 begins with, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let's have a moment of prayer. God, I thank you that you have taught us many things in Hebrews, many of them deep and honestly some difficult to understand. But God, you're showing us through this wonderful letter that we are going to inherit. We we have the promises now through Christ. We inherit an eternal kingdom that can never be shaken. You are a God who has loved us. You bring us into your family, adopting us through faith in Christ. But now, Lord, I ask that you help me convey in a way that I believe has been laid on my heart through this passage to focus our attention now on not just rejoicing in our heads with all the things that we've learned from Hebrews and all the things we know we have in Christ, but that we would then go do these things and live a life that shows our gratitude to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, You may be seated. Just three points this morning, just going to look at these first three verses because that's a section on its own. When we go through Hebrews 13, you'll see they're kind of categorized, I'm going to lump them together. So the next one, for example, will be more on how do you show gratitude to God by by being morally pure yourself. So today's about... Treating others, next week is more about focusing on yourself and being morally pure, and it goes on from there. So then, again, here's the idea. How do I show gratitude for the salvation God's given me and the kingdom I'm going to inherit? He begins with, it starts with showing your love for the family of God. The first point here is, it begins with love those in the congregation. I'm going to use the word congregation on purpose instead of like church. Congregation meaning the immediate family of God that you're a part of. You could think of it in terms of a local church body. So this is, it begins with showing love to those in your immediate congregation, your immediate family of God. In verse one, it just simply says, let brotherly love continue. In these three verses, in the Greek language it's written in, he actually gives three commands. They're in a command form, meaning you've got to do this. Not a suggestion it's not just an idea. There are commands given. The three are to continue to do something. The second one is don't neglect from doing something, and the third one is remember to do something. So we're on the first one here. We need to first then continue to do something, and it's in verse one. Let brotherly love continue. So that's his point here. The word uh, continue means what it says. Don't stop doing something. Continue it on. Keep keep it going. Don't let it cease. To to exist, don't stop doing the thing he's going to call us to. What is he calling us to here for? What do we continue to do? The ESV I'm reading out of says brotherly love. Let brotherly love continue. Don't let it stop. You you actually know this word, even though you say, "Oh, I've never taken a Greek class." You do know this word. You've heard of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That is this Greek word here. It doesn't just literally mean brotherly love, like for a male in the family. It is the word used to describe love that you have for your immediate family, your brother and your sister, those closest to you. It literally meant your blood relatives, but the New Testament uses the word in a bigger sense to talk about your adopted family of God. So he's saying, here's the first thing we do to show gratitude to God. Don't stop showing love for who, first of all your immediate family in the Lord. That's why I'm saying your congregation, those immediately around you that are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't stop doing this. Persist in it, he would say. Things like maintain unity among your congregation, your immediate family. Maintain that love, that togetherness of those that are in your immediate church. So make this more practical. We're talking right here, First Baptist Web City, your immediate church family. Show love to one another. Be united together in Christ. Express gratitude and thankfulness and a heart of humility towards one another. Why is he stressing this? You've got to remember their situation. Many of them are under persecution. There's other parts we've read where he says many of them have been driven from their homes. They've had property seized. They have been thrown in prison, some of them, all because they're Christian. They're still in a hostile environment. The temptation, I imagine, would be for each of them to start sort of just getting in their own corners and caring about only themselves to preserve and protect themselves. I think he's trying to warn them, don't do that. Remember this, you're all in it together. I know it's hard out there. The pressure's on for Christians, especially in the day when he wrote this letter. But he would be saying, no, listen, don't just say, well, I'm just, they're going to care about them and I'll just care about me and then it's okay. He says, no, no, no. You care about them, and they care about you. You care about one another. Love each other in the congregation, in the body. It Basically, he's saying you need each other to get through this life. It's not an individual sport. It's a team sport. You need to do it together. Let me share with you Paul's ideas about this idea of um, brotherly love and sisterly love. He says in Romans 12.10, Love one another with brotherly affection. But notice he goes on, out. Do one another in showing honor. So Paul says, honestly to me, pretty bluntly and shocking, probably. It's easy to say I care about you as my brother or sister in Christ, but Paul says, how do you prove it? We'll seek to outdo each other in showing each other honor. I, can, I should almost, in a sense, show you more honor than I would show myself. Is Paul's idea? Paul also says in First Thessalonians four nine. Now concerning brotherly love, same same idea, same word, you have no need for anyone to write to you, you could say or teach you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. I throw that verse in here for this reason. It's as if Paul is saying the idea that you and I should love one another in the family of God is so basic to what it means to be a Christian, you shouldn't have to have anyone teach you how to do it. It should almost come naturally, is what Paul is saying here. You, you don't have anyone to, that should have to write to you about this because you have been taught by God. You should just know how to do this. It should be almost instinct for us as Christians to seek to care and honor one another in our congregation. Peter also says in 1 Peter one twenty two, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, again, the same word here, for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly. I like how he says that. How am I to express my love for you as the family of God? With earnestness, passion, just strong sincerity that I really care about you. I want to see you grow in Christ. I want to see you be bettered in the Lord. And you do the same for me. We love with passion and earnestness our fellow family members of the Lord. But again, I want to stress where we're at in our first point. We're talking about right here in this congregation. I think that was his point. Love one another amongst your... I think they probably had house churches. He'd be saying, hey, love one another in your house churches, your immediate family, local body of Christ there. I want to read you some selections from John in 1 John. Here's why. Because John goes so far as to say this. John says, if you can't truly ever express love for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ... If you don't care at all about brothers and sisters in the Lord, John goes so far as to say that could be proof you're not really saved. You're not really a child of God. Let me share some of these. He says in 1 John 3:11, "For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another." Again talking about Christians. He goes on in verse 18, "Little children, let us not love the world or talk, but in let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth." How am I to show love for you and you for me? Not just by saying I care about you. And let's say, yes, pray for one another, but not just praying for one another. Actually taking actions to show that we care for one another. He goes on in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Now here's where it gets a little deeper. Because love is from who? From God. And whoever loves has been born of God And knows God. Now, loves mean not just love in general. He doesn't mean if you just love somebody, you're from God. He means love for the brothers and sisters in the Lord. So, whoever has the capacity, he's saying, to express genuine heartfelt love for their brothers and sisters in Christ, that is a big proof that they have been born again by God. Why? Because love comes from God. He goes on in 1 John 4 20 through 21. If anyone says, so hypothetical person here who says I'm a Christian, I love Jesus Christ, I've been born again. So here's what they'd say. I love God, but then John says, but they hate their brother or sister. They don't actually show love for their fellow congregation person, their their fellow local family in the Lord. But they say with their mouth on the one hand, I love Jesus, I love God, I'm a Christian, and on the other hand have complete disregard for their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. What does John say? This person is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. It's a logical argument he's making. You've never seen God. He's an invisible spirit. The Bible says that all over. Jesus was the the revealer of God in physical form. But God the Father, you can't see. He's a spirit. He's here and he's there and he's everywhere. So John says you can't see God with your eyes. Yet you want to say you love him, but yet his fellow children around you that you can physically see with your eyes you can see their bodies but to say you don't care about them that is illogical he says you can't say you love God whom you can't see when you don't love his other children whom you can see is his point verse 21 and this commandment we have from him that's from God whoever loves God must also love his brother again when I say brother this is not just the men It's the generic, like if I say in a crowd, you guys. I don't literally mean the men, I mean all of you. So you say you love God. The proof of that is, do you love your fellow family member of God, your fellow brother or sister in the Lord? And not just saying it, showing it with actions. That's his point here in Hebrews, is that is how we begin to show gratitude to the salvation God's given us, by showing love For our immediate congregation family, our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, not just with words. Yes, that's a start, but with deeds, with actions, we would be showing. Remember, Paul said honor to one another, outdoing one another in helping each other, maintaining unity in the body, not me promoting myself above you or you above me. It's me promoting you above me and you promoting me above you. And then we sort of all rise together as a family of God. It's your needs above mine. It starts here. We show our love to our brothers and sisters in the immediate family. I'm going to use that word, the congregation, this body of believers. That doesn't end there, though. He says that's kind of where it starts. Now, the next point, you also do show love to those outside the congregation. That's verse two. Love those outside of the congregation. He says in verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, I want to share with you how I'm interpreting this verse real quickly. You could read this and think that when he says strangers, he means everybody else outside the church. Now, it could mean that, but I don't believe that's entirely what he meant. I believe he's still on this theme of fellow Christians fellow family of God. I say that because verse 1 was clearly talking about brothers and sisters in the Lord. If you skip to verse 3, where we're going to go to next, he's clearly talking about those who are in prison. He means Christians who are in prison. This whole chapter is about love for one another, the Christians, the body there. So here's what I'm getting around to say is this here. I want you to see in verse 2 when we talk about it right now that he's primarily talking about Showing love to those outside of your immediate congregation, but he's still mostly talking about brothers and sisters in the family of God. Does that mean we ignore non Christians and don't show hospitality to them? Of course not. It doesn't mean that. I'm just stressing, though, that right here, I think he's still on this theme of showing gratitude to God by starting with those right here in my immediate congregation and then other Christians, other brothers and sisters who are part of the extended family of God. They're not really right here in my immediate congregation. I don't even know them personally, but we have a common bond through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm to do something to them, too. So let's look at it with that in mind. The command he now gives in verse two is to not neglect something. So verse one was continue to do something. Verse two is don't forget to keep doing something. What are we supposed to not neglect to do? He says to show hospitality to strangers. Now, this phrase, show hospitality to strangers, is a little play on words. In verse 1, when he says brotherly love, I told you that word was Philadelphia. Well, here in verse 2, when it says hospitality to strangers, it's actually just one word, and it begins with that same P-H-I-L-O, philo. So you have Philadelphia, love to the family. Here it's philo, but another word, I won't even try to say it. It's love for those outside the family, those outside your immediate family. So don't just focus on love for those right here in your midst. Help showing, focusing love on those outside of the immediate family as well. We're to not neglect to do that. The hospitality to strangers is this idea that you don't know this person, hence they're a stranger. You don't know them. You don't know them personally. You haven't dealt with them. But he would say here, don't... Forget, don't neglect to show hospitality to them. Hospitality means to treat them like a welcomed, honored guest. You don't treat them like they have a disease and you want them to stay over there. You know, you you welcome them in. You want them to be a part of your family, a part of your congregation. Again, what we're talking about here is the extended family, let's call them, of other Christians here. We're, We're not just to love our church. We're to also love Other Christians outside of our church is the point I believe he's making. Let me give you the historical context of this to help it make some sense. What I think was going on that he's referencing about don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, he means in their day it was common, it was customary in their culture, that when you had a traveler come through and they knock on your door, you would invite them in. You would feed them. You might even provide them shelter and lodging for the night. Well, it was commonly known through other outside of the Bible writings for their century that Christians were especially known for doing that with their fellow Christians, even whom they didn't know personally. So, for example, here in Hebrews, what was going on, whatever city that they're in, there would be another Christian from another country traveling through on business, let's say, and he has heard that there's a house church in your home. He goes, he knocks on the door, Oftentimes they'd even have a letter from their other church in the other country that was sort of like a letter of reference from the pastor or the elders saying, Brother so-and-so here is truly a brother in the Lord. Sister so-and-so is really a sister in the Lord. They are one of you. You've never met them personally. You don't know them, but the letter of reference showed they're, they're one of your family members in Christ, though. Receive them with hospitality. So then you welcome them in your home. You provide the food for them, the lodging. Here's why all of that happened. It was known in their day, uh, let's call it hotels, they called it inns, I-N-N, but let's say a hotel. Hotels for their days were not nice. They were known to be where the criminals stayed. They were known to be uh, houses of a lot of debauchery. I found one historical writer from this century where Hebrews would have been written, who said that someone who was an innkeeper, you know, a hotel manager, they were on the same level as considered to be running a brothel. That is how they viewed inns and hotels back then. They were not pleasant places to be. So with that in mind, now you're a Christian, and you're in an environment where they're not friendly to you just because you're a Christian, and you need a place to stay on travel, you're going to look for other Christians to let you stay with them, not an inn or a hotel where, like this gentleman said here from long ago they were not nice places in fact they could have probably even been persecuted if they were discovered to be a Christian so it was customary practice for you to go find lodging in a fellow believers home that you'd never met personally I found another writing here that said this this uh, concept was so known throughout their world even non-christians were very much aware at how hospitable Christians were to their fellow Christian whom they'd never met personally And I found this that I found interesting. There was a a writing back in their day. It was not it's not a part of the Bible, but it's another Christian writing from their day where whoever wrote this was trying to set out some rules to help Christians know whether or not they should receive a guest in their home or not. Let me just read it to you and you maybe understand it. it. It was giving advice again to Christians to say, how do I determine who to let in my home or not? And how long do I let them stay? Here's what it says. Let every apostle who comes to you be received as the Lord. But listen, but let him not stay more than one day or if needed, let him stay a second day. But if he stays three days, if he stays three days, he is a false prophet. When an apostle goes forth, let him accept nothing but bread until he reach his night's lodging. If he asks for money, he is a false prophet. In layman's terms, here's what this was saying. This was advice written to Christians of their day because it was such a widely known practice that Christians are so friendly, so hospitable, they help their own traveling through. There were people going around falsely claiming to be Christians to get free lodging and food for the night. So that this writing said, let me help you determine if they're real or not. If they stay one day, fine. If they beg you for two that's iffy. If they beg you for three, kick them out. They're false. They're not really a Christian. Then on their way out, if they beg you for money, go ahead and kick them out. They're false too. So I just point that out to say that is how hospitable Christians were back then to one another. And it was just widely known. Well, now a danger though has set in for them that I think he's warning them of. Notice he says, do not neglect. Don't stop showing hospitality. Which means these Christians were in danger of not showing that same level of hospitality. Why is that? Remember, they're under persecution. Not everyone's friendly to them. It was also widely known that some people would knock on the door of a Christian knowing it was the home of a Christian, claiming they weren't really a Christian, but they would claim to be a Christian so they could be invited in. Maybe even go to church with them. Why? To spy on them. At times, the government was not friendly to Christians. This still happens in places around the world today. Government spies on the churches they'll find. They want to see what's being taught in there. Is it anti-government? What's going on? They had a similar thing going on. Well, then these Christians start to get a little fearful and say, maybe we should stop letting guests in our home. Because we don't really know where they're from. They say they're a Christian, but we don't really know that. What if they're a government spy? What if they're just someone out to persecute us and steal our stuff? We don't know. So they had probably stopped doing as much of that. And here he comes and reminds them, don't stop showing that same level of hospitality. Keep doing it. Even though it's risky, keep showing your love to those outside of your immediate church. Why? He says, well, some have entertained angels unawares. You never know who you're inviting in your home. You never know who you're turning away. I believe he's referring back to Genesis 18 and Genesis 19. In Genesis 18, Abraham saw three men approaching. And when you read the story, it's very clear they were not just men. Two were considered angels, and one is considered a a pre-Jesus sort of episode of the Son of God appearing in human form. Abraham invited them, fed them a meal, gave them water. Genesis 19, you have Lot, Abraham's nephew. He's in the wicked towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. He sees Two of the three, the two angels I just told you that Abraham saw, well, those two angels traveled on to the city to destroy it. It was so wicked. Lot sees them, welcomes them in, provides for them. And here his point again is, you just never know. Lot had no idea right off the bat he was entertaining angels. Abraham immediately probably didn't fully understand who he was entertaining. But they did. It was the right thing to do. And now he doesn't say entertain strangers because you never know it might be an angel. I don't think he's saying that. He's just making this point to say, be sure to show hospitality and love to those outside your immediate congregation. You never know who they really are. You never know why God has brought them into your area. You just never know. So just show hospitality, show the love and the kindness Jesus said in Matthew 25:35 that on the day of judgment, there will be those that God basically says you showed kindness to my brothers and sisters. And they're going to say, how did we show kindness? One of the verses Jesus said is for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And they're going to say, well, what do you mean we welcomed you, God? We well, didn't welcome you. And he'll say, no, when you did it to the other brothers and sisters in the family of God, you did it to me, meaning God. Now, I want to stress here, you know, this would mean in our culture, our context, other churches. Show love, the first point, to our immediate congregation, but don't stop there. Show love to those brothers and sisters of other churches, too, who are outside of our congregation. How can we show hospitality to them? How can we show that we're a part of this big family of God, united by faith in Christ? The third and final point, he says, now then, show love to a third group those suffering for Christ in difficulty. Verse three, it says, remember those who are in prison and though as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So the third command is in the word, remember. So the first command, continue something, brotherly and sisterly love to one another here in this body. The second command was don't neglect something. Don't neglect to show hospitality to brothers and sisters outside of this immediate body. Now, thirdly, remember to do something else for another group of Christians. These would be those, I use the phrase, they're in difficult circumstances. The difficulty of their circumstances is all based on one reason. They're being persecuted because of claiming Christ. That's the group we're talking about. Remember those who are in prison, he says. Again, in context, he doesn't mean literally every prisoner. He means fellow brothers and sisters who are in prison because they're a Christian. They have been arrested, they have been jailed because the government said, you can't say that, you can't do that, stop doing that. And they said, I can't stop. Now they're in prison for it. He says, don't forget those people. Don't, just because they're in prison and they're out of sight, out of mind, don't forget about them. The command to remember means not just in your mind, it means to care for, be concerned about. Those who are in prison and mistreated, he says, this uh, word for mistreated, if you look at it, it's interesting. It can mean any form of mistreatment. It can be physical mistreatment, like physical persecution. It can be non-physical mistreatment, meaning that um, you're just hostile treated, maybe verbally, maybe sort of kicked out of parts of society. Some of these people had probably lost jobs and careers just for claiming Christ, and they had a boss or a business owner that said, I, that's not what we're going to have here. So there was both physical and non-physical types of persecution. But he wants them to understand, don't forget about those people. There are some who are literally in prisons. Remember them. How are we to honor these people? Let's just call it empathy, he says. Have empathy for them. What is empathy? Empathy is not just when you say, oh, I feel bad for them. Empathy is when you try to actually feel what they're feeling. You try to put yourself in their shoes, we say. Someone has maybe lost a loved one, and it sometimes helps if they're comforted by someone else who's lost that same kind of loved one. How can, how can they find more comfort? Because the other person comforting them has actually felt what they're feeling, going through what they've gone through. That's his idea here. You may not be in prison for Christ, but don't forget about them and don't just think of them in your mind. Empathize with them. Try to feel what they're feeling. Husband's thrown in jail for being a Christian and now what is the wife and children to do for income? Try, try and feel that. Imagine what that would be like. Being dragged from your home one day because you're a Christian. Losing your freedom. He says, don't forget them and, and feel, feel that in your soul. Why are we to do it to that level? Because look at the rest of the verse. He says, as though in prison with them. So kind of pretend you're with them. They're in jail, you're in jail. And those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. It's all one body, he says. If one part of the body hurts, all of the body hurts. It's not, we can't separate it and say, well, these Christians over in this third world country who are literally persecuted and physically thrown in jail, um, you know, I'll pray for them, but then that's kind of as far as it goes. Paul would say, you may have never met them personally. They may not even be a Southern Baptist. But if they're a true child of God, part of the family of God, hurt with them hurt with their families. You're with them. You're in prison with them. You're feeling with them. You're hurting with their families. You're praying with them. That is the level he's talking about. Empathy. We're the same body. Here's another quote I found from a writer of history. Again, in this era. And here's what was said about Christians. It says, If they, that means Christians, hear that any of their number, their members, is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, Listen to what this this is a historian, a non-Christian historian from the first century around the time when this was written, too. Here's what he says about what they saw Christians do for their fellow Christians thrown in jail. He says all of them provided for his needs. And if it is possible that he may be set free, they would then do whatever it took to deliver him. If there is among them a man that is poor or needy and they have not an abundance of necessities, they were quick. to. For, they would fast two or three days to make sure they had the supplies they needed with necessary food. Again, in layman's terms, this historian of the first century could say, man, these Christians loved each other so much that when one of them went to jail, they would provide for their family. If one of them went to jail, they would go try to provide for them in jail. They would try to spend their own money and effort to get them out of jail, if possible. If one of their members didn't have enough food, then the ones that had food would go without food for a day to give the ones without food their own food. That's the level they cared for one another. Why is he stressing this? Again, I think it was risky. It was risky to associate with fellow Christians who were in prison. In their day, the prison system was not like ours. I know our prison system, a lot. you can point to a lot of holes and problems with it, but our prison system is very much kind compared to theirs. Our prisoners have you know, the beds and the pillows and the amenities. In their day, if you're thrown in a prison, you depended on relatives and friends to bring you a pillow. There's references of Paul in a letter asking someone to bring him a coat because the winter was coming, and he's in prison. So even prisoners weren't given the basic needs. They had to hope that someone was going to show kindness to them and bring it to them as a visitor. It was risky, though, because if this Christian was thrown in jail because of something they did as a Christian, and you go publicly visit them and meet a need, what are you saying to everyone else now publicly? Oh, I'm one of them, too. Well, there's a risk now. Are you going to be thrown in jail, too, just like they are? The challenge was, he was encouraging them, don't forget them, don't be scared, show love to them, too. Show honor to those in very difficult circumstances for Christ. You have another quote from Jesus in Matthew 25:36. Again, it's the same scene I quoted to you earlier. It says, I was naked. This is God talking. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. That's what God will say on final judgment day to Christians when he says, you showed love to me by showing love to other brothers and sisters, those who were in prison too. Hebrews 10.34, they had already been commended for doing good. He said they had compassion on those in prison. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they've already done it. He's just encouraging them, don't stop, keep doing it. 1 Corinthians 12.26 says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. When you're going through something and it's painful and it hurts, let's say you were thrown in jail or you suffered something for being a Christian, my job and the other people's jobs in this family is to suffer with you. When you're rejoicing because of something great going on in your life and God's moved in a mighty way in your life, then I'm to rejoice along with you that God is doing that. We mourn together and we rejoice together is Paul's point. It's one body. It's not hate that for you, wish you well, but that's as far as I'm going to go with you in that. No, he says have empathy. Go along with them in that. The final verse I'll share is in Romans twelve fifteen. He says rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Meaning in the body, the family of God. How do we show gratitude to God? Again, simple three points he gave. Let that brotherly love continue. Focus on that love right here. But don't stop here. The love outside of here to our fellow Christians that we've never even met. And then remember those. Who are suffering some reason for Jesus. I just want to leave you a thought about this. This weighed heavy on me studying this this week because I took it personal. I, I at times pray for Christians that I know around the world are in jail, but if I'm honest with you, I've never sat down and studied that. I found a ministry out there called Voice of the Martyrs. I would, I would encourage it to you to look them up. That is all they do is track around the world persecuted Christians You can find their data. You can find their prayer requests. You can even donate money and they'll get it to their families. There are ways to do what he is saying we must do in our day. It may look different than how they did it. All it takes is us being intentional to do it. And remember those who are hurting around the world for claiming the name of Christ. I want to close with just saying again, like I always do, all of this only matters if you are a true child of God, a true believer in Jesus through faith in Him, forgiven of your sins. I pray that you are. If you are, you've been saved, you're forgiven through your faith in Christ, you know He's died for your sins, He rose again. If that's true, then now what He is saying to us, now go live that. Go show your gratitude to God for the salvation He's given you. How? By doing this stuff. Actually taking action. It starts with showing that love to the family of God. My ask of you as I pray is, again, just ask God to search your own heart. What are those areas maybe you have not been focused on the one another's each other showing love to one another here showing love to those outside let's be honest i mean we probably have times that we hear of things at other churches and maybe we get jealous like how are they doing that or why are they doing that Hebrews would say hey rejoice with them if another church has something great going on rejoice that that's impacting the kingdom if another church is hurting hurt with them have we ignored those maybe here around the world suffering for some reason for christ let's pray Lord, thank you for that salvation you've given us freely offered by your grace. If we would only call out in repentance and faith, we're forgiven and saved forevermore. Now, God, I would ask that you start within us, stir our hearts to not just believe these things, but to take action and live these things out in our daily lives. And as the challenge before us from Hebrews is, would we leave here today, Lord, with a greater passion to fervently and earnestly show love to one another right here, and outside of this church to other Christians and to those who are hurting around the world for being a Christian. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.